Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. And I am Janelle. I'm Vicky. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Um, this is the last day I have before I come back from a three-week break. Aww. So I'm in a state of mourning. Oh, no. <laughs> I did take the week between Christmas and New Year's off um, from work, my regular job, which was like beautiful i can't honestly remember the last time i had that much time off in a row Mm -hmm. it was amazing but yes there is like a morning period before you have to go in i've been gone for like almost a whole fucking month i don't like how do i do my job again you don't (laughs) you just quit and never work (laughs) right (laughs) oh it's gonna be interesting we'll see how tomorrow goes (laughs) yeah definitely coming off of the holiday hangover Mm -hmm. um i'm like got bills to pay right ew you know <laughs> i feel like january is always the worst month for bills and stuff i know i'm like christmas drained me out yeah and also then, like, i drained myself out <laughs> i always have like you know my license plate goes up in january mm. like all these things that are like once a year up in january i'm like god damn <laughs> see mine happens in november like mm. right before everything kicks off which isn't honestly that great either because i'm like well gotta push everything back like two weeks till yeah. i get my next paycheck <laughs> Oh, American this has life. Been old people corner. With <laughs> yeah, we were, just, we were just talking about like, look at these adult conversations <laughs> we're having. I never thought it would happen. And then here we are. Here we are. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. This is a true crime podcast. I promise. Yes. <laughs> Grab your tea and your cat and settle in with a nice blanket and some knitting to listen to yeah. these tales of murder and mayhem. Delicious. Yes. <laughs> um, we've got a great show coming up i i think so <laughs> 2023 new year new me new I mean, us new, new year, podcast same this person. isn't even about crime anymore no yeah same um, person i've always been this is an inspirational podcast <laughs> <laughs> we're here to talk to you about jesus <laughs> total 180 for 2023 <laughs> <I> just choked <laughs> <laughs> um but first let's head over to the newsroom This week, our story comes from Mesa, Arizona. Ooh, delicious. Uh, Stephen Joseph Anderson, 34, was charged, arrested and charged with a felony count of disorderly conduct, felony count of mutilation of a body, and a misdemeanor count of failure to report a death. Oh. Do you know what's going on here? 
Was it I defended myself and then covered it up? Not That's quite. Usually. Not quite. <laughs> okay. So Anderson met a 33-year-old woman named Rebecca Lynn Lambert um, at a park. They went back to his place to allegedly take meth. Allegedly meth. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Anderson has allegedly told investigators that he went to go take a shower after they took this meth and then when he came back lambert was dead uh likely from an overdose and then he tried to revive her Uh-oh, okay by stabbing her in the heart with a five inch knife using uh like a ritual uh-huh yeah um if it was like a a syringe i could be like okay yeah adrenaline well, and so, <laughs> admittedly, I've been rewatching House. Mm-hmm. So I was like, is this some like Houseian type? <laughs> right? Like Grey's Anatomy situation? Yeah, yeah. No. no. Um, He's not trying to perform a trach in the field. No. No. Okay. He just stabbed no. her in the heart and wanted to perform a ritual to bring her back to life. So okay. he is arrested, uh, awaiting trial. He has been booked into jail and then into a mental health facility. That's where that lands but that's I just what meth will do to you that is what meth will do um and the first thing i do after i smoke a lot of meth is take a shower <laughs> you know you feel a little dirty right <laughs> you are smoking cleaner so yes, yes. <laughs> we're moving on to netflix and kill which this week is an hbo and kill because nice. we are talking about uh call me cleo <laughs> call me miss cleo i saw that I did watch it. I was like, yes. oh my gosh, Bo, we have to watch this. Which is, mm-hmm. I will admit, like very lightly on the crime. It's kind of like some light fraud, right? Yeah. And this was not like the documentary I was expecting either. Mm. I'll be honest. Like the kind of tone and like sort of overall story theme mm-hmm. um, was less about like the fraudulent stuff um, and more about Miss Cleo as a person. So. Yep. For those that don't know, Miss Cleo. How dare you first? If you were if you were alive in the nineties and you saw an infomercial, you probably saw If you hear Call Me Now. Call me now. You hear it in a Jamaican accent, (laughs) no matter what. (laughs) Yeah. uh, she was a TV infomercial psychic. Super big in the nineties. Yep. mysterious (laughs) person. Tarot cards, but always about somebody cheating. Yes. And yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Mysterious in her work life. Mysterious in her personal life. I mean, this the sort of background around Miss Cleo is very like un. um, What am I trying to say? Unconfirmed. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of facts about her, her past life. Uh, She worked for this psychic network. Uh, that got pulled into a lawsuit eventually. She was named in a lawsuit at some point. It's an interesting watch. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's it's not so much about the crime, the fraud, the fraudulence, yeah. but more about Miss Cleo as a person um, and kind of what she was like and what her life was like, which the thing that got me, I mean, I get like, Having these friends, right, and people that knew you, knew you as Miss Cleo, knew you as this persona, and to have them say, well, all of that stuff about her life that we don't know doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. I disagree. I honestly think it does, <laughs> especially when you're talking about somebody putting on a different persona of, like, people remembering her without the accent, without being this huge Miss Cleo personality, and as mm-hmm. somebody with a totally different name, like... 
I don't know. There was something that kind of rubbed me the wrong way about that. Because I'm like, it does kind of matter. Well. We're talking about somebody lying to a lot of people. But isn't that every single actor and actress who's ever existed? Yes. So. Yeah. But (laughs) not every single actor and actress is like hiding their past and trying to. to. Not so much anymore because of social media. But like. Yeah. Pre-70s. Yeah. They would. Completely are, not talk about their families or, you yeah, know, so for yeah. me, I don't see any, because she is a TV personality. Yeah. Yeah. So you're living your TV personality. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> There's something about that that is kind of like, eh. What are, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? Um, I mean, it was interesting to hear how people perceived her mm-hmm. that were close to her or the people that just worked with her. Mm-hmm. But... It was also kind of interesting to hear the stories about people calling in, like, yeah. suicidal and, like, yeah, and how basically it became more of kind of like telephone therapy, like yeah. we have now. Yeah. But, you know, using tarot cards. Yeah. And even just some of the, like, behind the scenes <laughs> of the way these psychic ne- networks worked. Yeah. Um, was, like, kind of interesting. It's a call center. To me. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's telemarketing, basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought, I mean, I think it's worth a watch. It's mm-hmm. very short. It's, like, three episodes, I think. Yeah. Not, mm-hmm. not, uh, super time suck. Worth, worth, worth it. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little fun. Plus, not the end, need, but it's a little fun. Well, yeah, <laughs> but if you need a little like nostalgia boost too, oh, like yeah. mm-hmm. it definitely hits that nostalgia piece of of my brain. Yes. <laughs> this is that part of the show where you say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. Yeah, I don't know. There might be some inappropriate stuff in here, but what are we talking about today, Janelle? I think so. <laughs> Fuck, I it's wrote this so tell. long it's ago, I forgot. Tell. You know. <laughs> So I thought we're coming up into an election cycle. <laughs> oh, good uh, lord! I thought true, let's though. let's snap ourselves back to reality and remember the government is terrible most of the time. <laughs> so mm. we're going to take a look at government cover-ups. Yay! Um, One of my favorites. And we're going to put quotes on the cover-up just so that we're not held liable for anything. <laughs> Yes, alleged cover-ups. This allegedly. is a heavy, allegedly episode today. Um, <laughs> and the one thing that kind of came to my mind when I was thinking about government conspiracies and cover-ups is military-based ones. Okay, which I, there are plenty to choose from. There's a lot. Our military be creeping. Yes, yes, every branch of it. <laughs> um, so we will be taking a look at actually a current kind of hot button issue. Okay. <laughs> um, and we're going to talk about Camp Lejeune. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so <bakula>. interesting. <laughs> I will be honest. I don't, when it comes to like modern day politics, mm-hmm. mili- military affairs is not necessarily something I pay a ton of attention to just because it's not something I know a ton about. Yeah. You know, it's not, I guess I could learn about it, but who's got time? (laughs) Right. Um, So this will be, this will be good. This will be informative. Yes, it'll be sadly informative. Great. Lovely. (laughs) So if you have had your head in the sand for a long time. Me. um, Yeah. (laughs) A a lot of news has been coming out about uh, violence uh, and crime on military bases. Mm -hmm. Um. And a lot of that is covered up. And if you're not aware, military bases are 
not really safe. They're one of the few no. places that you would think would be safe, but they're not. Very contrary to popular belief. Mm-hmm. There's lots of crimes. Um, we've seen a lot of assault cases. Yeah, they've uh, had like a, a reckoning in a way. Kind of, yeah. not a full reckoning. It's coming more. It's like yeah. more of a reckoning than they've had in the past of people coming forward with claims of sexual assault. And mm-hmm. I've heard that. I mean, I've heard that from personal acquaintances on more than one occasion oh, yeah. that have been in the military. Like, uh-huh. it's yeah. pretty fucked up. Yeah, it's really fucked up. Um, some bases see a lot more crime than others. Like Fort Hood, for example, is one of the worst ones. Damn. Um, I've actually been on military bases. Okay. Um, my sister is a military family. I visited her in Washington and Tennessee. Um, previous to that, she was in Georgia. So she's been on quite a few military bases. Um, it's like being on another fucking planet. Oh, I believe that. I <laughs> um, believe it. So it's a little bit strange. You you come into the base and under heavy security, but once you're in there, it's like a, a free, free for, for all. all. <laughs> yeah, it's like a free for all. Um, and we're going to ca- talk about Camp Lejeune and its history of being one of the worst marine bases um, known to man. Okay. We're going to look at a little bit of history of crime on the base so that you can better understand the actual real case that I'm going to talk, which is going to involve lawsuits and poison. Oh, boy. Um, foreshadowing. Uh, <laughs> oh my god and even when you're talking about like military law it's like its own mm-hmm. separate oh god. Yeah. okay it's I'm some separate ready. nonsense yes nonsense um, is the right <laughs> word for it yeah so camp lejeune was built in 1941 in north carolina it is a marine corps base if you're not aware there was a little bit of a world war happening at this time <laughs> oh you don't say and they were packing the coasts with bases and military personnel to be on the safe side so this camp was thrown together in hopes to keep all of North Carolina safe because <laughs> it needs it. I don't know. Oh, um, God. <laughs> do, do we need them, though? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, it was mostly an amphibious, amphibious unit training facility um, because it's on the coast. Okay. So uh, at the beginning, it was a segregated training unit camp. So they did have black Marines um hispanic oh, marines like racially racially segregated. segregated oh shit um white marines and also indigenous people who served in fact one of the marine corps women re- reservist units um of strictly just indigenous women was um serving out of this particular base really so yeah it had a female marine indigenous corps so the <laughs> units themselves were like all completely yeah, so all, bizarre all native american women so strange um so there's there's a really amazing history about that yeah if you're interested in learning more about that yeah um the camp has had a ton of issues uh the military desegregated in 1949 so just after world war ii but if you've been to the south you know even today still it is segregated still <sighs> um yeah. And this base was one of the worst ones. While they were technically desegregated, it wasn't the case. Um, And in 1969, the camp actually had a race riot. Shortly after MLK was assassinated, it was the peak of the Vietnam War. And tensions were boiling over because of mismanagement by upper personnel of um, the Black Marines. And so they literally had a riot on the base. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So it's not really known as uh, a safe area. It's not really known for personnel listening to 
the issues yeah, and yeah. figuring stuff out before things happen. Of course. A little uh, foreshadowing there as well. Um, <laughs> the race riot actually left 15 Marines injured and one man dead. Oh uh, Corporal God. Edward E. Blankston died in the riot. So it was bad. It was a big to-do. And that really wasn't very big news because they wanted to keep it a little quiet. It was in North Carolina, and then slowly people started to hear more about it, but it was something that was trying to be kept out of the papers. Okay. Um, it was, this riot was subsequently investigated by the military, and it did eventually lead to widespread changes in military race relation policy. But, again, <laughs> we know the South. I've yeah. Been, I, I've been there a lot. Oh, <laughs> my mother is wish I had. My mother's <laughs> southern side of the family lives in North Carolina and Virginia, so I'm very familiar. Oh, so we're gonna just do like a little timeline of some other issues on the base before we dive into the poisoning. Okay. Um, in 1979, there was a murder of North Carolina Marine Leroy Delaney, um, which is actually a Hulu docu series. Um, what happened to Delaney, I believe is what it's called. Ooh, so okay. that investigates his disappearance from the base and ultimate murder. Yeah. In 1987, the murder of Lieutenant James Lotz and his wife Joan by one of his men in his home on the base. Oh, my. <laughs> um, keep these years in Ooh. mind as we're talking about this. Um, in 2007, Lance Corporal Maria Frances Lauterbach was murdered as she was... Um, Going to report a sexual assault by her I commanding officer. I remember officer. that one. Yep. I remember that one. Yep. 2020, Lance Corporal Sean M. Miller was charged with armed robbery on the base, uh, which he fled and was later apprehended. So he was robbing people on the base. Jesus. Um, in fall of 2020, four Marines, now this is a big story that came out, four Marines on the base were charged with arms trafficking. Oh, fuck. Okay. According to an indictment, there was a video showing the four participants outfitted in Adam Waffen masks, giving the Heil Hitler sign beneath the image of a black sun. So they were Nazis. Oh, great. What's an Adam Waffen? An Adam Waffen uh, is an organization that um, is kind of a militarized neo-Nazi southern group that uses a lot of Norse imagery and <laughs> all the hits, you know? All Norse the hits. I know. I'm literally Norse like imagery, forming the image of this person in my head, and it's um, probably right. Yeah. So the last frame of the video shows uh, some text saying, come home, white man. Oh, God. <laughs> so it is believed that the Marines were contracted to run arms since they are marines they wouldn't be really asked any questions um they also allegedly helped to recruit more marines into the guerrilla side of their quote-unquote death squad that they were forming and people wonder why we are asking for <clears throat> oversight on extremism in our it's in the military military everywhere. and police and if people in authority like if What's you take a look at people who were at the Capitol on January 6th, most of them are former military yep. and police officers yep. or current and active yep. um, with ties to extremist groups, particularly neo-fucking Nazis. Yeah. And some Congress people. Yep. State and federal. Hey, I'm like... All 
I just Y'all. want to clarify. I'm all for uh, taking down government. No, anarchy. But <laughs> I, this, I can't even get into this right now. But yes, that's. But that was not yeah. anarchy. <laughs> no, that was an insurrection. That was an insurrection. Um, that's a different. Yeah, that's, different it's a podcast horse of for a, a different, different color. <laughs> um, but this, I think it was important to highlight this because these are people who are stealing guns from the military yep. to sell to extremist groups mm-hmm. who are Nazis. <laughs> Didn't we fight against those guys? <laughs> yeah. 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 But well, not this kind of Nazi. No, this, this is, is a dis- different kind of a different of flavor of Nazi. God. This is like Nazi light. It's like Nazi the Coors light, light <laughs> of like the regular Nazis. The last one I'll highlight before we go into our poisoning um, was in 2021, nine members of the Camp Lejeune uh, 2nd Marine Division were court-martialed for possession and intention to distribute uh, controlled substances. In particular, this was LSD. <laughs> want to be tripping i'm not too sure about this particular case i know there is a a lot of people who use lsd and mushrooms for um mental health Mm. but like ptsd yeah Yeah. but this sounded more like drug run okay okay (laughs) this sounded more like they had gallons of lsd for other purposes oh good lord i'm i'm all for using that sort of thing for you know there's a lot of like microdosing. Yeah, there's a and, lot of really good research yeah. about um, PTSD, trauma, care with specifically mushrooms, but also LSD, um, ketamine. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know we have a ketamine clinic out here? We do, yeah. I, I like, so, I got an, an, yeah, an <laughs> ad for been, it, but. and I was like, wait, what? Anyway, mm-hmm. total aside, but. There's health benefits. I was like, oh, look yeah. at Illinois go. Look at us. <laughs> Um, so there, you can see those, that's just a short list of a few highlights. Okay. The hits, the greatest hits. Right, the greatest hits. Um, so we see a lot of violence, uh, a lot of drugs, gun trafficking, <laughs> extremism, all in this little base in North Carolina. But I want to talk about the biggest case to come out of the camp, the camp, and it's the contaminated water lawsuit. Okay. So we're taking like a 360. Okay. But I want you to keep in mind about the contaminants we're talking about because prolonged exposure to certain chemicals can affect people's personalities and also their behavior. Yes. So I'm going to posit a question at the end of this. Okay. (laughs) Now, remember, the camp was built in 1941. It is estimated starting in 1953... The water of Camp Lejeune was contaminated with chemicals well beyond a reasonable level of human consumption, which was extreme toxic levels. Great. In 1979, a fuel spill occurred at Hadnot Point, leaking 30,000 gallons of fuel into the aquifer. So that's the source of water for the entire area. Okay. In 1980, the base began testing the water for... I'm, I'm going to have a difficult time saying this. Try a halomethanes. Okay. Sure. That sounded right. In response to the new regulations from the EPA. Okay. <clears throat> was the, like, the aquifers that they were getting the water from, did they only serve the base? Like, like, it served mostly it, like, the, the base. the community around it as it's, well? Yeah. So it mostly went to the base, but there is community around okay. it. Okay. Okay. Um, oh, God. Okay. Yeah. And usually, mostly what happens when you have a base is the community around it is military still who just sure. don't want to live on the base. <laughs> right, right. 
That same year, a laboratory from the U.S. Army Environmental Hygiene Agency began finding halogenated hydrocarbons in the water as well. So the EPA in the 80s had a big push to start testing water and air. Which is good. Which is great. The whole reason we have an EPA. Yeah. Um, and they were pushing army bases and military, any military base really in particular, uh, to test all of their water okay. to make sure it was safe. In March of 1981, one of the lab's reports was delivered to the U.S. Marine officials on Camp Lejeune's base, and it stated that the water was extremely contaminated. I Great. have a one of the um, notes that was left by this company. Okay. There is a website called uh, The Few, The Proud, The Forgotten, um, which has all of the documents scanned for anyone to view involved in this case. If you'd like Great. to see how many fucking notes all of these agencies who tested the water gave to this base. I love saying, some good governmental documents. Yeah, saying, hey, hey, your water's still contaminated. Hey, you still have toxic levels in your water. This particular note says, in, in bold, in bold handwriting, you need to analyze for chlorinated organics. <laughs> like, just in big letters on this note. They must have missed it. They must have just read right over um, it. <laughs> Yeah, so it says the date that it was anal like they received information in January. The date the information was analyzed in February, and they sent it to the office uh, like ten days later. So they were really quick with their turnaround for the analysis, yeah. and they were ignored. Wow. The reports found that the water supply had two hundred and forty to thirty four hundred times levels permitted by safety standards of volatile organic compounds such as PCE, which is perichloroethylene, which is a dry cleaning solvent. Oh, God. TCE, which is trichloroethylene, which is a degreaser. Okay. And approximately 70 other different chemicals. Wow. Wow. In that, I don't, I don't want to <clears throat> say I'm surprised because nothing our government does really surprises me anymore. <laughs> but... You would think that 3,400 times the level permitted. What? As <laughs> you are having this sort of um, shift in the way people view the environment, the creation of the EPA, and now its enforcement, like, you would want your own military that, you know, represents the federal government to, like, be the um, example, be the example, you the would shining think, example. But... A lot of people who serve in the military are poor. Yeah. Are one fist fight away from being in prison. Sure. But I mean, like, just, like, maintaining the bases to have fucking clean water. My point even. is they don't give a shit about the people that serve. Yeah, no, they don't. They don't give a shit about the people that serve. Um, the amount of things that people who serve in the military are forced to take without question. Yeah. Like... Yeah. Pills and all kinds of things that they get shots into oh their God, arm. Yeah. Um, I know a lot more than the average person because of the amount of people I know in the military. Yes. But yeah. like they don't care about you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is what happens when you retire. Yeah. And it's the, a great use of all of that fucking money we're oh, yeah. giving to the military. Oh, yeah. That's for the shiny toys. It's anyway, not for the people. I digress. Right. <laughs> um this is a tiny soapbox moment. I know. 
because well my sister-in-law just became a nurse at the va oh and i'm like you're boy. you thought working at the nicu was hard right <laughs> just you wait yeah <laughs> um because you'd be just as difficult if not more mm-hmm. um because you want to help people and you fucking can't yeah, yeah. so um in 1982 a privately owned company granger laboratories was contracted by the marine corps to test and report back on water safety levels. So they got their own people to start testing. They delivered a report showing that the wells supplying water for the base were contaminated exponentially and filed a warning at the end of the report that the water source needed to be stopped use. Um, the base did not stop using oh, the water. God. Oh my uh, God. And the company continued to issue warnings to the commanders on the base about the poisoning water for months. In spring of 1983, a report to the EPA, uh, Camp Lejeune officials stated that there were no environmental problems at the base. Okay. Just because you say something doesn't make it true. Right? <laughs> They're manifesting it, right? Yeah, put it in the universe. <laughs> manifest. Our water is not contaminated. Fine. Our water is not contaminated. No one's going to die. <laughs> it's all good. Right? All those chemicals make it taste better. <laughs> Actually makes you healthier. Right? I'm pretty sure. It cleans out. It degreases the inside of you. (laughs) Detox. Right? It's detoxification. Oh. So in June of 1983, North Carolina's water supply agency asked Lejeune officials for the Granger Lab reports on the water testing. And the Marines declined to provide the reports to the agency. They're like, no, I don't think we will. No, 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 no. It's okay. It's Take my word. I saw what the report (laughs) said. (laughs) It's good. We're golden. Clean. Clean bill of health. Um, oh, God. In July of 1984, one year later, um, another private company was contracted by the EPA to conduct water testing at the site, and they found another chemical, benzene, in the base's water, along with the crazy levels of PCE and TCE. Um, marine officials shut down one of the contaminated wells in November of that year, and then a few others earlier in 1985. The Marines notified it, the North Carolina um, state, and they said that the contamination um, was caught and they were working on it, right? It was making caught. It, making it sound like it just happened. Right. Um, in the meantime, while they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're doing that. We're getting everything shut down. Um, they did not notify the Marines on the base right away. <laughs> There's part of me that has this feeling like a total chemical X moment where they're just like, let's add enough shit to the water and maybe one of our Marines will turn into a superhero. Right? They'll turn into the X-Men. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Some mutant with superpowers. Yeah. So they didn't notify the Marines on the base right away. Eventually, they did disclose it to the people living on the base, but then they did not send anything out to anyone who had previously lived on the base. (laughs) In 1985, a few newspapers started to cover the contamination, but since they did not have a great deal of info on the extent of the contamination and how long it went back, uh, it appeared to be like a minor story in the local papers. By December 1987, all the contaminated wells were finally closed. 1987, when I was fucking born. And when did they start getting... 1953 is when they said that they reported the first issue. (laughs) God. 1953 to 1987. Wow. The had-not-fuel farm on the base, however, continued to leak fuel. Oh, perfect. Although it wasn't going into the aquifer, it was going into the ground still. Well, 
that's better. And it got listed on the EPA Superfund list site, which means that it was going to be shut down and clean up. So anytime you see EPA Superfund list, that means that they're closing that area and going forth and putting money into it to clean it up. Okay. Now, we're going to go back a little bit. The camp history we've gone over, but we're going to start to kind of talk about some of the documentation that was actually sent out and reported that was covered up by government officials. Okay. In 1997, the Agency for Toxic Substance and Disease Registry, which is actually an organization that's affiliated with the government branch of Health and Human Services. Okay. They investigated the well water and concluded that Cancer derived from exposure to the water was unlikely. Now, according to investigators, this organization did not test or even look at the information regarding the benzene that was found in the water in this time. Okay. Now, benzene is a chemical that is used to make other chemicals that create plastic, resin, nylon, and synthetic fibers. Ooh, gosh. Benzene is also used to make certain types of lubricants, rubbers, dyes, detergents, drugs, and pesticides. Mm. It's a multi-purpose drug. Mm, 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 and benzene is a confirmed cancer-causing chemical. Oh, my God. So is is unlikely just, like, less than 50%? Is that, like, the definition of yes. unlikely? Well, they didn't test for benzene, <laughs> oh, and God. they didn't look at the reports that had benzene contamination listed on it. Good job, guys. So out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> right? They're like, oh, PCE and TCE don't cause cancer. They cause other things, like Parkinson's disease and liver failure. Which is much better. And birth defects. Yeah, so much better. So benzene definitely 100% causes cancer. Yeah. Um, they cited that possible sources of the contamination uh, were from a dry cleaning company nearby. Um, the unit also had military equipment that was left over from the Vietnam War that was sitting leaking toxic chemicals into the earth. And leaks from the underground storage of fuel tanks in that fuel field that was leaking 30,000 gallons of fuel. Oh. So they figured out where all the sources of the chemicals were coming from. But they kind of didn't do their due diligence, didn't look at the previous reports, and didn't test for benzene, even though it was listed on other reports. Okay. Now, in 1999, the Marine Corps began notifying former base residents that they might have consumed contaminated water. So 1987 is when everything was shut down and they started notifying people on base. Okay. And in 1999, over 10 years later, they decided to start notifying people that previously served that they might have consumed contaminated water. Wow. The notifications were directed by a federal health study examining possible birth defects among children born at the base during the contamination years. <clears throat> so not even because they wanted to notify people of their contamination, but because there was a study happening to see if there was birth defects that occurred during the contamination years. Yeah. So not even in a roundabout way. Yeah. That's wild. In 2005, the U.S. Department of Justice and the EPA investigated the Marine Corps' handling of the issue and reported that they found no criminal conduct by Marine Corps officials. 
Sure, hey. sure, 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 sure. Sure, sure, sure. In 2007, however, one of the EPA investigators told Congress that he had recommended obstruction of justice charges against some of the Camp Lejeune officials, but it was overruled by the Justice Department prosecutors. Okay. So people underneath the head honchos in charge said, at least obstruction of justice because they were not reporting things right away and holding on to reports. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds fair. It was also around this time that the organization, The Few, The Proud, The Forgotten was started, which I had mentioned at the top of this episode. And this is a website that was started by Marines who had lived at Camp Lejeune previously. And they have an excruciatingly detailed timeline of everything that happened Mm -hmm. from 1953 until last year. Yeah. Good for them. (laughs) Until 2020 fucking two. Yeah. Um, They have... Scanned in documents that were found, scanned in documents that were hidden um, on the website. So you can actually look at all of the reports and the notes and everything that was being sent to the Marine Corps officials on Camp Lejeune's base about all of the contamination. (laughs) They also have a 14-page registry of previous Camp Lejeune Marines and families who go on there to report the illnesses Mm. that they have contracted. So really, it's sort of just like a grassroots, like trying to hold accountability project yeah 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 Yeah. they also have a lot of information for people who'd like to seek assistance with health care mental health good Uh, they also um have a lot of information on this next gentleman that i will mention um who was really a person who fought so hard to get this recognized by congress which Mm -hmm. led to um some government action so in 1997, Jerry Ensminger, who was a retired Marine Master Sergeant, found out that there were reports about contaminated water on the base. This was really important to him. Um, in 2007, he found a document dated uh, 1981 that described a radioactive dump site near a rifle range at the camp. Okay. And according to the report, the waste was laced with strontium-90, which is an isotope to cause that causes leukemia and cancer. Oh, good lord. So something that was not even previously mentioned before. So we have the PCEs, New. the TCEs, the benzene, but now they're saying that they were dumping radioactive waste on the site. Okay. According to Camp Lejeune's installation restoration program manager, base officials learned in 2004 about the 1981 document. Now, this was really important to him because Ensminger was stationed on the base for years, like a really fucking long time. He's a career Marine. Mm-hmm. Um, and his daughter, Janie, was born in 1983 on the base. At the age of six on September 24th, 1985, Janie died from leukemia. Oh, my gosh. Um, she was conceived and born and raised on the base. Yeah. Jerry Ensminger um, believes that his daughter died from leukemia due to all of the radioactive and water contamination that um, was on the base. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Ensminger continued to fight to bring to light the absolute negligence of the Marine Corps officers of the base and the government. He was really key in the development of some... um, acts that occurred later yeah in 2008 the marine corps began a congressional congressionally required notification campaign to notify former base residents of the issue so they were forced by the government to start notifying everybody not just people who had children on the base wow an online health registry now contains more than 135,000 names 
of people who surfed and the Damn. time periods of the contamination. <laughs> I wanted to play a short clip of one of the other officers talking about... Actually, no, I think the first clip is Jerry Espinger. So let me pull that up. Okay. He told me they had a truck that had a tank on the back that they would dump partial containers of solvents, DDT, you name it, when it came into that lot, they didn't want to put this stuff back in through the system. They were told to dump it, get rid of it. But perhaps most remarkable was that when the military decided to build another well at the base in the 1970s, the site they chose was an area adjacent to Lot 203, the dumping ground. The well supplied water to a base housing complex called Hadnot Point. Years later, water testing confirmed a slew of chemicals, but primarily a chemical called TCE, a solvent used for cleaning metal parts and a known carcinogen in high concentrations. It's 1,400 parts per billion. Multiple documented readings. That's almost 300 times the recommended limit. TCE in drinking water has been linked to brain and spinal defects, cleft lip and palate, and childhood leukemia. The area around the dumping ground is fenced off with a hazardous waste sign now. But look how close the well was to that site. The grassy area highlighted is where the well was drilled, just yards from the contamination site. So it was literally like a sidewalk, a strip of grass contamination site. <laughs> yeah. And they knew the contamination site was there before they drilled the well. The new well. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's not a good look. Guys, Chemicals I don't seep say. into the water. What are you talking about? So oh. in 2009, that year, a lawsuit was filed against those in charge regarding the contamination issue. That year, the Caring for Camp Lejeune Veterans Act of 2009 was introduced and was to provide assistance to possible victims of the Lejeune water contamination. The proposed bill would authorize treatment at a U.S. Veteran Administration facility at, to any veteran or family member who was based out of Camp Lejeune during the time the water was contaminated and anyone who suffered from adverse health effects. The bill never made it to vote. It died before it even got to the floor. Wow. In January of 2011, retired Marine Joel P. Sherberger, I think I said that right, um, filed another lawsuit against the U.S. government claiming that Lejeune's contaminated water caused his breast cancer. Breast cancer in men is extremely rare. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sherberger was stationed at Lejeune from September 1957 through April 1959. At the very beginning of water contamination. Oh my goodness. Right after this, 10 lawsuits who started to pop up uh, were consolidated together in the U.S. District Court in Northern District of Georgia to go after Camp Lejeune. In October 2014, a federal appeals court rejected the North Carolina legislator attempt to extend a time limit for filing pollution-related lawsuits, which yeah. directly affected those 10 consolidated lawsuits that were coming together. On October 14th of 2014, the 11th U.S. Circuit Court ruled that um, CRCLA did not preempt North Carolina's statutory limits. So 
what they're trying to do is to put a statute of limitations on some of these lawsuits because they were from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s to try to curtail every fucking person who ever served on that base suing the military. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Now, it started to work a little bit, but not quite. That same year that the first few successful lawsuits started to happen, a documentary film on the water contamination was produced and released, and it was called Semper Fi, Always Faithful. The film was directed by Tony Hardman and Rachel Libert. It made like a a bunch of appearances and won an award for a feature film. Um, So if you're interested in learning more and hearing about the people who got fucking cancer and died from this, go and watch it. In April of 2012, members of the U.S. House Senate and Senate Veterans Affairs Committee signed a letter to President Obama asking the health care for Camp Lejeune contamination victims to be expedited. Good. Um, on January 18th of 2012, or uh, July of 18th of 2012, the U.S. Senate passed the Janie and Swinger Act authorizing medical care to military and family members who had resided at the base between 1957 and 1987. And... The measure applies to 750,000 people, (laughs) is what they estimated. Wow. Um, That's children, families, and people who served. Wow. The House approved the bill in July, later that month. President Obama signed it into law in August of 2012. And the bill specifically calls out 15 different ailments believed to be linked to the contamination The Department of Veterans Affairs uh, is assigned to provide the medical care to people. And to fund the medical care, the bill extends higher fees for VA home home loans to guarantee money for the first few years of it. Okay. Now, in February of 2014, the Center for Disease Controls and Prevention issued its report on the effects of the water contamination um, so that people could understand, like, the gravity of the situation um, because people weren't understanding why there was a bill, like people were trying to get a bill passed. They're like, this is water contaminant. Like, how bad yeah. could it be? Yeah. Well, the report stated that Camp Lejeune Marines had a 35% higher risk of kidney cancer, a 42% higher risk of liver cancer, a 47% higher risk of Hodgkin's lymphoma, oh my God. a 68% higher risk of multiple melanomas, and a double risk of ALS. Oh. Yeah, those are no small numbers. No. And those are some of the worst can't like you the rate of surviving kidney and liver cancer is next to nothing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um in twenty twelve, the Camblejeune Justice Act of twenty twenty two was introduced. Did I say twenty twelve? Yes. I meant twenty twenty two. In twenty twenty two, we're looking towards the future. I was like (laughs) (laughs) Um so I'm going to play another clip. The U.S. government has acknowledged what happened there. For nearly 35 years, until 1987, those who lived on the base were potentially exposed to dangerous chemicals every single time they drank the water, swam in the water, or bathed in it. But our CBS News investigation found that many families are still, all these years later, looking for justice. Catherine Herridge has spoken to some of those families, and she joins us now from the Pentagon. Catherine, good morning. Tony, good morning. A bipartisan group of lawmakers has introduced legislation that would help thousands of military families get accountability in the courts for toxic exposure that goes back generations. 
This is what we call baby heaven. Tucked away in a remote corner of this North Carolina cemetery is row after row of infant graves. Born October 6th, died October 7th. Born October Retired 6th, drill instructor Jerry Ensminger was among the first to call out the Marine Corps over toxic drinking water at Camp Lejeune, which is just down the road from the cemetery. What killed all these children? It falls right within that period of time when the water was contaminated. From 1953 to 1987, those serving at the sprawling marine base were potentially exposed to contaminated water. For years, toxic agents seeped into the soil and poisoned the groundwater at fuel depots, base junkyards, even a dry cleaners that's since been demolished and designated a hazardous site. In some areas, tainted water was 400 times what safety standards allowed. When I first heard about this, it was like God opened the sky up and said, hey, Jerry, here's a possible answer to that question that has nagged you for, by that time, it was 14, 15 years. In 1982, Ensminger's six-year-old daughter, Janie, was diagnosed with leukemia. Was toxic water to blame? I blame it. Janie passed in 1985. She was nine years old. She died on a Tuesday. It was in the afternoon. You're a Marine. Was this the hardest thing you've ever had to live through? Nothing compares to watching one of your kids suffer and go through hell. And I blame the Marine Corps and Department of the Navy. So if you didn't catch that, they were at a baby graveyard. Yeah. Giving this interview. Yeah. And the children in that graveyard, mostly, are from that military base in the years that the water contamination was occurring. Interesting. And most of those children didn't even make it to a year old. Mm -mm. So that interview was given um, right before uh, they started to take the Camp Lejeune Justice Act to uh, Congress to vote on it. Now, President Biden signed it into law in August of 2022, and the act allows military veterans to file civil lawsuits against the U.S. government for harm caused by at least 30 days exposure, um, including in utero exposure to water at the Marine Corps base camp in Lejeune from 1953 to 1987. Good. So we will see in the next few years. Yeah. All of the court cases yeah. that follow this particular lawsuit. And it was really important that they passed this because the lower courts were the ones that were preventing these lawsuits to go forward to protect themselves, basically, from right. getting right. government Oof. pushback. Oof. But this is still an ongoing issue and it probably will be for years to come the united states marine corps actively covered up the poisoning of hundreds of thousands of men women and children in camp lejeune north carolina but are we surprised no no not even in the slightest so if you served in camp lejeune north carolina you may be entitled to compensation. <laughs> oh, gosh. But that is the government cover-up of 
Campbell June. Oof. Enjoy. Okay, so my story, I have a feeling that you will probably know this. No, <laughs> this is not probably not good. <laughs> yeah, and it, honestly, it's one of these stories that I feel like is really popular. I personally am just like not... Plum Island. Yes. No. no. <laughs> I'm just going to start no. naming what? government no. conspiracy. No. Um, <laughs> so the government cover-up portion of the story is actually kind of small. Okay. <laughs> um, although unless you consider police part of the government, then it... Is, is there a difference? They're militarized. True. true. <laughs> um, but as you're talking about government cover-ups, cover you inevitably walk into this world of conspiracy theories mm-hmm. and whistleblowers. Yeah, um, it makes it a little difficult because there, it sheds just enough doubt to make you almost right. not believe it. Right, right. And the idea of whistleblowers is actually one that I find really interesting mm-hmm. um, and super important in holding you know, companies and different organizations accountable to like their members and their employees and their communities that they serve, like they are crucial. Whistleblowers are like, we need you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm very, I'm very pro whistleblower in most cases. In most cases. There's very fewer. It's not been good. (laughs) Right, right. Um, So today I wanted to talk about Karen Silkwood Mm, and the Kerr-McGee plutonium scandal. This does sound slightly familiar. Okay. okay. (laughs) So initially born in Longview, Texas, Karen Silkwood was raised in Netherland, Texas with her two sisters, Linda and Rosemary. Um, She went through school and when she got old enough, she attended Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas for a career in sciences, but dropped out in 1965 when she married William Meadows. Now, their marriage only lasted for seven years. It was unable to weather the storm of an extramarital affair and Meadows overspending. Um, Everything's bigger in Texas. (laughs) Oh, my God. Ain't that the truth? (laughs) Even the overspending. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in 1972, Silkwood divorced Meadows and moved to Oklahoma City, where she really wanted to kind of start over, start a new life. What a place to start over. (laughs) Oklahoma City. (laughs) So nothing bad ever happened there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just rewatched something about Oklahoma City bombing literally yesterday. So it's fresh in my mind. <laughs> oh, God. I feel like it says a lot when something like that really tickles my funny bone. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't. If you listen to the podcast. Timothy McVeigh jokes. <laughs> if you've listened to the podcast for a while, I don't know if we actually made this on, but last year, I don't know if you remember, Tiff got me a mug that had Jeffrey Dahmer on it that yeah. says you are looking like a snack. And I used that mug yesterday to have my coffee. And I was working and I looked over at the mug on my coffee table and just started laughing. <laughs> We're very into the macabre, you know? <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, Oklahoma City. <laughs> Great place to she be. landed. Yeah. Um, and so she, she worked as a hospital clerk for a little while, but then she was hired by Kerr McGee. So let's talk about Kerr McGee for a second. The corporation had its oil and nuclear complex in uh, the, the complex headquarters was in Oklahoma City. Now, this is from an article on Rolling Stone, quote, in 1951, the company became the first oil producer to 
decide that nuclear power could be a profitable supplement to petroleum, and Kermagee soon ranked as the country's largest uranium supplier. Which is kind of interesting, because if you're thinking about where they're at, that's oil country. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a bold statement. Uh, <laughs> that's a good point. I didn't think about that, actually, yeah. when I was researching. In the early 70s, it helped pioneer the move to plutonium, a rare substance that is more dangerous and valuable than uranium. Mm -hmm. The late Robert Kerr, the company founder, was governor of Oklahoma, ran for president as a Democrat in 1952, and blowing my mind right now. (laughs) At the time of his death in 1963, was one of the most powerful men in the Senate. Dean McGee, his protege and successor as head of the corporation, advised President Kennedy on defense policies and President Ford on energy. Well, <laughs> so this is kind of like where Kerr McGee is coming from. Super powerful energy company with very powerful connections in government. Clearly, like when you're advising the president, this is also one of these things that drives me crazy. When you're advising the president on energy as the head of an energy energy company, company. although I don't think he was the head of the energy company at the time, but like (laughs) y'all, his last Mm -hmm. name was McGee. (laughs) Yeah. Like almost like that should be illegal or something. (sighs) Almost. Almost. (laughs) So in 1972, um, Silkwood is hired on by Kermagee as a laboratory analyst and chemical technician in their plutonium plant. But while she was there, she became a lot more knowledgeable about plutonium and its dangers and became incredibly disillusioned by management and soon after became involved in the local oil, chemical, and atomic workers international union. Okay. <laughs> this is your kind of lady. You getting I think. socialist yeah. up in here. <laughs> Uh, she went on a strike with the union in 1972, and shortly after that, Silkwood was elected to the um, steering committee. Might I add, she was the first female member to do so. Okay. Soon after, she was tasked with tasked with investigating the health and safety concerns at the Kerr-McGee plant. The investigation uncovered what she believed to be numerous violations of federal law, including faulty respiratory equipment, workers regularly being exposed to contamination, improper storage of samples, and a lack of sufficient shower facilities. Yeah, you have to shower after you deal with that stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh Plutonium is, like, insanely dangerous. Oh, yeah. It stays on your body and your clothes and everything. mm Mm-hmm. So, in 1974, Silkwood and other union representatives were invited to Washington to speak with the Federal Atomic Energy Commission, which is something that doesn't exist anymore. It's been, like... Well, I'll get to it later, but it's been dissolved into other commissions where she testified that Kerr McGee was sloppy, dishonest, and unsafe. Sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) Shortly after the hearing, Silkwood was convinced by another union member, Steve Woodka, uh, to begin spying on the company from the inside Mm. and gather company files to assist in corroborating the allegations. This is when the weird shit started happening. (laughs) Up until now, it's like pretty, for a whistleblower story, pretty straightforward, I would say. On November 5th, 1974, Silkwood was grinding and polishing plutonium samples in a glove box that would later be used in fuel pins for reactor fuel. Now, when I say glove box, 
I'm not talking about like your car glove box. It's like literally a box, an enclosed box that has gloves you put your hands in so that you can handle material within a safe environment. Yeah. Right. Just like you would do for a sandblaster or things like that. Yeah. It's all sealed off. There's no, you know, and especially because you're risking contamination, we are dealing with a highly radioactive material like Mm -hmm. this, that type of thing. I know I kept reading glove box and my brain was like car, 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 but it's not. (laughs) So before leaving the area... Silkwood performed a routine self-check with an alpha detector that was mounted to the top of the box. The check determined that her body contained 400 times more than the legal limit for plutonium contamination. What? (laughs) Yeah. What? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And they, it mainly detected it on her right side. Mm -hmm. Um, The plant doctors went through a decontamination process and sent her home with a test kit to collect urine and feces samples. Their their policy was like that the three or four days following exposure, you have to collect basically every waste sample Mm -hmm. uh, in that time. Upon further investigation, it was determined that the plutonium had come from the inside of the gloves, meaning the part where you actually stick your hands Mm -hmm. in. Yeah. And that there were no holes or any, like, break and seal or anything on the gloves. it wasn't made out of the proper material. Uh, Well, it also (laughs) suggests that the contamination had not come from actually inside of the glove box, but from somewhere else. And when she put her hands into it? Maybe. And they just marinated there. Maybe. Or somebody... put plutonium in the gloves before she used it or there's i mean there's a ton of possibilities yeah the following morning silkwood was headed for a union meeting when she again tested positive for plutonium this time she had not come into contact with any she'd only been in the office working on paperwork before the meeting and this office was behind like Two filtration systems. Alleged filtration systems, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, in in this office. So there was no reason that she should have any, like, plutonium contamination. Mm-hmm. Again, she went to the plant doctors where she went through a more extensive decontamination process. The next day, November 7th, Silkwood went directly to the doctors when she arrived at the plant. Now, this is from Public Health and the Law, quote, There she was found to be contaminated in her nostrils and on her hands, arms, chest, back, neck, and right ear, end quote. Four urine tests and one fecal test showed extremely high levels of contamination. Silkwood was once again decontaminated and was accompanied to her home by Kerr McGee. I was going to say, her home must be irradiated then. Yeah. I mean, pretty much. (laughs) Kerr McGee helped. Physicists went to determine if any cross-contamination had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also worth noting that she shared her apartment with another plant worker named Sherry Ellis. Mm-hmm. Essentially, like you said, the entire apartment had been contaminated pretty much uh, in some way or another. But they found the highest levels in the bathroom and the kitchen, including on the bologna and cheese in the fridge. God damn it. <laughs> it's because they're probably both touching it. <laughs> from uh this is from pbs frontline quote when asked uh, uh how the alpha activity got into her apartment silkwood said that when she produced a urine sample that morning she had spilled some of the urine she wiped off the container and the bathroom floor with tissue and disposed of the tissue in the commode mm-hmm. 
Further, she had taken a package of bologna into the bathroom and laid it on the closed toilet seat lid. She remembered that she had part of her lunch from November 5th in the refrigerator at work and decided not to make the sandwich, so she returned the bologna to the fridge. Which to me sounded like a very like ADHD moment of like, oh, I'm doing this thing. Oh, I was going to make this sandwich. Oh, here, let me set it down she, so wait, I can finish wait, doing this thing. But where'd she put the bologna? <laughs> the art, so the article said that she where had she? put it on the closed toilet seat, like brought it into the bathroom. Why? I don't know. Why are you bringing bologna into the bathroom? <laughs> this is why it feels like a very ADHD moment of like doing one thing. Going into the kitchen, starting to make this let sandwich. Me st- let me start a sandwich. Oops, I have to do a pee sample. Oops, I spilled the pee. Oh, I go back into the kitchen. Oh, yeah, I was making yeah. a sandwich. Oh, wait, I left the pee in the bathroom. I don't even know. <laughs> what? Yeah. The, when you said laying every- the, polo- the bologna on the, on the toilet, I, I thought know. you meant like a slice at first. I oh, know. I think it's like the package <laughs> of bologna. But in my brain, I just envisioned her just like laying a slice on the toilet. I'm like, what the fuck you is she doing? You need some good toilet germs for your sandwich. Oh it adds flavor. That's how we clean. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, there is some question as to how she became contaminated. Of course, Silkwood believed, and it sort of makes sense, that she would have been contaminated at the plant. Mm -hmm. Was her roommate working in the plant, like more inside of the plant? No, she did the same thing. She was also a laboratory analyst. So I was going to say, it would make sense if one of them was like in the plant, and then they would just keep cross-contaminating each other. Yeah. So she pretty much was like, I know this has to have come from work. I would agree. Uh, meanwhile, Kermagee took the position that Silkwood had purposely exposed herself to plutonium to sort of be this, like, martyr for the cause. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, radiation is awesome. Yes. That's the perfect <laughs> way to get my point across. Just look at how Marie Curie died. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll see how awesome radiation mm-hmm. is. <laughs> On November 13th, 1974, Silkwood, who had also, she'd been, like, gathering evidence on the company and putting it all into a manila folder and very i mean a fully irradiated manila folder. (laughs) (laughs) um so she had been gathering all this evidence put it all together um and went to an evening union meeting now from there she was actually heading for a holiday inn where she was meeting steve wadka her boyfriend at the time drew stevens and a new york times reporter david burnham So she has all this evidence. She's going to talk to the paper. Mm -hmm. She was definitely preparing to blow the whistle on Kerr McGee Mm -hmm. um, and its unsafe practices. However, she would never make it to that meeting. (gasps) Oklahoma police. Thank you. Thank you for the. (laughs) I I appreciate the dramatic reaction. Uh, Oklahoma police were called to an accident on Highway 70, State Highway 74, Uh, By the time they arrived, they found Karen Silkwood dead in her Honda Civic that had somehow crashed into a concrete culvert. Not the Civic. (laughs) Not my Civic. Now, this is again from the Rolling Stone. Um, The highway patrolman who helped recover Silkwood's body from a Highway 74 culvert a short distance from the plant says he noticed several documents scattered in the mud and tossed them in the back of her wrecked Honda. 
But by the time Wadka, Stevens, and Burnham retrieved the car from garage the next day, the manila folder and documents were gone. Oh my god, espionage. (laughs) (laughs) It is alleged that not only did Silkwood have documents supporting her claims of health and safety violations, but that she may have unwittingly obtained documents that proved a plutonium smuggling ring (laughs) was operating from within the plant. Not what I expected. (laughs) I know. It was... and this all, again, seemed pretty straightforward for like a whistleblower kind of conspiracy story. And then mm-hmm. they were like, plutonium ring. And I was like, is it going to Russia? Oh, like, God. Is it going to Russia? <laughs> no, but I could give you another this three is, guesses and you'd probably get it. This is like peak Cold War times. <laughs> it's true. It's Yeah, that's true. Autopsies found... North Korea. That's my second guess. <laughs> nope. Damn it. Not North Korea. <laughs> no, not, not North Korea. Autopsies following the crash revealed traces of alcohol and a sedative in Silkwood's bloodstream. Mm, that's and not suspicious. Authorities decided that she had likely fallen asleep and drifted off the road. On purpose. The union was suspicious. Yeah, they fucking were. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, they I got the impression that she probably told them at that meeting that night, like, hey, oh, yeah. I've got this manila folder. I'm going to talk to this New York. Which Times means there's reporter. probably a mole in the union. Ugh. God, that's true. I didn't want to think about that, but you're Sorry. probably right. It's too much. I watch too many TV shows. <laughs> Espionage TV yeah. shows. Mm-hmm. So the union was super suspicious, and they decided to hire auto accident specialist A.O. Pipkin to what do the name <laughs> uh, to do his own investigation of the crash. A few days later, Pipkin announced that he had found a fresh dent in the Honda's bumper, which Ooh. most of the damage was front end because she crashed in this culvert. Yeah. Um, so why would there be a rear end dent? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He also found inconsistencies in the highway's contour and the skin marks at the scene, indicating that Silkwood had actually been forced off of the road by a second car. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. The same day, Kermagee opened its own investigation into Pipkin to try and dig up some dirt on this guy that Mm -hmm. was investigating this crash of their former employee, which is not suspicious at all. No. Mm -mm. (laughs) They just want to make sure he's doing a good job. They cared a lot about their employee. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All they were able to find was some unsubstantiated claims of like IRS troubles. Literally said IRS troubles in like the 50s. Yeah. And it was like, that's it. So good job, Kermagee. <sighs> Following the accident, both the state medical examiner and the Atomic Energy Commission requested that her body and organs be analyzed by the Los Alamos Tissue Analysis Program. Uh, there, they took samples of her liver, lung, stomach, gastrointestinal, gastrointestinal tract, and bone to analyze. The concentration of plutonium confirmed that she had ingested plutonium before her death. Mm. The tissue analysis also aided in confirming whether or not the testing procedures that had been developed for plutonium thus far were actually accurate or not. Because Mm. it's so rare to have somebody that has so recently been exposed to plutonium die suddenly i mean it's not like that's something that happens every day Mm -hmm. that they really took advantage of like um and they did they they had permission from the family i think legally they didn't need it but um they did get permission from her father to like test her tissues and stuff so it actually was super helpful for a huge scientific advancement in plutonium testing not something that i encounter every day but like i'm sure somebody (laughs) does (laughs) 
The AEC opened an investigation into the company, uh, but pretty much disregarded any kind of idea of scandal at <laughs> the company Typical. or like within. Mm-hmm. Uh, the GAO would later publish a report called Federal Investigations into Certain Health, Safety, Quality Control, and Criminal Allegations at Kermagee Nuclear Corporation. If you're into that sort of thing, like reading government documents, it's pretty it's pretty interesting <laughs> read. Sad thing you're into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is a pretty interesting read. Um it'll be in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Says me who also yeah. Yeah, in yeah. government documents. I, I skimmed through it and there's it's it's interesting. But the report was together in conjunction with the FBI, AEC, Energy Research Research and Development Administration, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The report found that 20 of the 39 allegations regarding radiological working conditions were substantiated and various other allegations about records keeping and quality control were actually true. Hmm. Who would have thought? Karen Silkwood was right the whole time. (laughs) Of course she was. Just a year after the crash, Kermigee closed their Oklahoma City plant um, it appears to me like due in large part to the controversy, there was all of these problems at the plant coming out. Uh, a few years later in 1979, uh, a couple ex-employees, Jim Smith and Jerry Cooper, did an interview with Rolling Stone, basically saying Silkwood was right the whole time. Uh, they claimed Kermagee was sloppy, completely disregarded the AEC's guidelines. They had leaking pipes and defective equipment the company would refuse to fix until slack production periods. Oh, that sounds so familiar. Right? A lot of the jobs I've had. <laughs> right? It's like, this is a problem for when we're slower, except we weren't being exposed to fucking radioactive material. That we know of. <laughs> that, that's a good point. I just, I'm going to choose to believe yeah. that I was not exposed mm-hmm. to plutonium. <laughs> you know, there could be some benzene. There could be yeah. TCE. PCEs, we don't know. (laughs) They also claimed that uh, the plutonium was shipped in unsafe leaking containers. Likely, doesn't it have to be in fucking lead? I think so. (laughs) But it's also poisonous, right? And it's kind of pointless if the whole container is fucking leaking. Yeah. This likely resulted in contamination in the area of Kentucky where the waste itself was buried. Of course. And plutonium possibly being diverted from the plant and never recovered. Yeah. Which is like missing plutonium is kind of a big fucking deal because overseas. You know what they use plutonium for? Bombs. Nuclear bombs. (laughs) Big fucking bombs. The list goes on. I mean, that if you look at any of the articles in the show notes, the two from Rolling Stone are really interesting. And they just like go through all these fucking allegations that are like. Yo. The FBI eventually closed the investigation into Silkwood's death, and this definitely left like a ton of un- unanswered questions. They were looking at reopening the case, and then a Kerr McGee executive intervened, and they were like, no, no, no. No, thank you. <laughs> they, I, I'm assuming using his congressional connections, like somehow was able to get the FBI to drop this investigation, but Probably. it was largely helped by the DOJ, who was also like, we're going to make sure you don't open this investigation. Yep. Sounds about right. Hmm. Are they from Oklahoma? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, actually, but 
That would be interesting. <laughs> In 1979, Silkwood's family filed a lawsuit against Kermagee for negligence on behalf of her estate. She had kids, like she was survived by kids too, so it was her father and her children. In total, the trial would last 10 months. The Silkwood family, of course, claimed she had been contaminated at the plant. Kermagee maintained that the amount of plutonium found in her body was well within the legal levels. <laughs> they also, as you might expect, really tried to paint Silkwood as this like troublemaker and alleged that she poisoned herself on purpose to help her cause. Ultimately, the jury awarded $505,000 in damages and $10 million in punitive damages. Upon appeal, it was reduced to $5,000 total. What? <laughs> For the cost of lost property in Silkwood's home. Because after all this happened, they basically had to destroy all of her property. Yeah. Because it was all radioactive. So they're like, we're just going to give you the money for the stuff we destroyed, and that's it. It is bullshit. <laughs> in 1984, it went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well. <laughs> who then restored the original verdict. Good. Yeah. Uh, Kermagee tried to appeal on other grounds, but ultimately settled the case out of court for $1.38 million, but admitted zero liability. They Alfred plead. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We recognize that you have enough evidence to find us guilty, but we're not admitting guilt. (laughs) In 2000, author Richard L. Rashke released a book called The Killing of Karen Silkwood, where he claims the people investigating everything were receiving death threats. Oh, yeah. Um, And everywhere from, like, the police, the FBI, to, like, the commission agents. Yeah, Um, they're going to come fucking drop some plutonium on their asses. (laughs) You better knock it off or there's going to be plutonium found on your front step. You won't be able to eat bologna ever again. Not the bologna. (laughs) Uh, he also talks about the missing plutonium and like this plutonium smuggling ring and the various high level governments that were involved in this, including oh God, here we go. the CIA, of course, MI5. I was going to say, is it related to the guy who got some plutonium sprinkled into his tea? Oh, I don't know. Remember that guy? Oh, yeah. That guy who died? Yeah. <laughs> um, the Israeli Mossad. Okay, yep. Mm-hmm. That was my third guess. <laughs> and a group of Iranians. Yep. <laughs> See, I told you, I could give you three. You probably could. <laughs> yeah. um, and that Silkwood's death was covered up by the U.S. government. Um, it's called the, Caring of Sil- Ki- the Killing of Karen Silkwood by Richard L. Rashke, if you want to check it out and, and find some more information. But that's kind of where our story ends. I mean, it's a lot of loose ends. It's a lot of plutonium floating out there in the world. Yeah. there And there was some... Also, that makes me not want to go to Kentucky, because that's not the first time I've heard that Kentucky is a radioactive dump site. Oh, yeah. Oh, as yeah. well as West Virginia. It was, you know, it was really interesting, because as I'm researching Kermagee and kind of... I mean, it's this huge corporation that, mm-hmm. because of the business they are in, and nuclear power, they definitely have their fair share of, like, controversy, oh, right? Yeah. Um, there was a huge lawsuit in Illinois, actually, because they were looking, um, they essentially were negligent at a fucking dump site in Chicago. Like, yeah. y'all. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's pretty common. I just. That's the, sad that it's pretty I common. Know, I know, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. 
the thing that I find interesting, and I'm not, I as I was researching, I should have put this figure in here somewhere, but it was like the amount of plutonium that was missing was enough for like 40 atomic bombs. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, that's really fucked up. They're saving it for a rainy day. <laughs> that is God. actually a really good way to handle plutonium is in water. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, how so we that's transport the story it. <laughs> also, if you want to, there was a movie called Silkwood that came out in like the 80s or 90s starring Meryl Streep as Karen Silkwood. And that's how I know the story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom was like, oh, there I was, was like, a movie I think I know about this that. Because of the- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think I got everything. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty wild to think that somebody would purposely poison themselves with plutonium, even yeah. as an activist that is like strongly into your cause. Like, that's fucking nuts. Yeah. Because the amount of plutonium that she. She didn't have to poison herself. <laughs> right. Right. She was getting poisoned already. Mm-hmm. And the amount of plutonium that was in her system, there was a doctor that testified at the trial later that said, yeah, she's pretty much guaranteed to have cancer. Oh, yeah. With that amount of plutonium in her in her body. Yeah. So, you know. And every time you said Kermigy, it made me think that that was like a Kermit and Piggy mashup name. So they were the villains in the story <laughs> in my head. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so before you blow the whistle on a government cover-up, whistle noise here, <laughs> why, don't, why don't you check out this podcast? <laughs> Actually, maybe blow the whistle first and then listen yeah. to this podcast. Because God knows they'll probably try to murder you. <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah. Murder Road Trip is a true crime podcast where I, your host, Haley, discuss murder cases in my car, aka the Mobile Beats Lab. Join me and my partner in crime, H.H. Gnomes, on the road. There will be games, mixtapes, and snacks as I make the research journey to murder scenes around the world. Make sure to check your back seat, and I'll see you at the next rest stop. Well, that has been our show. Big downer. Come come to the end of it. (laughs) Everyone's Um, getting poisoned. You get poisoned and you get poisoned. (laughs) Janelle, do we have anything coming up that we can talk about? I think we do. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So um, we will be back at Side Street Studio Arts for Dark Matters number two. This coming March. Yes. (laughs) I had to think about that. Um, The event's happening March 4th and 5th. We don't have the date yet of when we will be performing. Yeah. Um, But there will be a variety of different podcasts actually yeah. a couple of our friends will be there ghostly podcast and maybe it's spiritual oh also be there are they <laughs> yeah How exciting um so we'll have some yeah. some friends uh at the festival dark matters is really fun if you're into like the spooky shit it's yeah. a lot of paranormally kind of stuff yeah, it's definitely heavy on paranormal and, and true the dark. crime um, last time they had some tarot card readers. Mm. This time they're going to have a lot more vendors. So there's going to okay. be a little bit of like oddities and things. Nice. I'm um, into that. So it's a, a nice weekend of, of darkness. So when <laughs> nice we weekend have, of spooky shit. Right, when we have the information about when we're going to be there, we'll post that. Um, there'll be tickets that you purchase for the whole weekend. Um, it's a good time. So yeah, just stay tuned here. Or if you're following Side Street Studio Arts, they'll announce stuff there as well. Yeah.
Is that it? That's it. That's okay. All we have if one event, you, <laughs> one whole event. <laughs> it's still early in right? the year. <laughs> uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you can find more just like this at badtastepodcast.com, where you can also find links to our Patreon page and to our merch if you feel like getting a t shirt. I don't even know if it's been updated yet. We got a lot to do this year. Yeah. <laughs> we, did, uh, we did update some of them, but we haven't yeah. changed anything like. It's still the same stuff. So yes, maybe yes. we'll add some new products. <laughs> yes. Um, but if that's all we got, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zashevsky, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. I lost my plutonium. <laughs> I lost my plutonium. I'm dropping my plutonium. Did I leave it in the Civic? <laughs> it's in my baloney. It's in my baloney. <laughs> you got your baloney in my plutonium. You got your plutonium in my baloney. Oh my god. <laughs>